Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch from the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. This week we are discussing the 30th and final episode so far of Twin Peaks Beyond Life and Death. This episode was written by Mark Frost and Harley Payton and Robert Engels and it was directed, fortunately, uh, by David Lynch. It first aired June 10th, 1991 as part of the sort of Twin Peaks finale doubleheader with last week's episode. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yep. Man, what a crazy shift that was. Yep. Wow. All right. So in this episode, Cooper finds the Black Lodge, Wyndham Earl meets his end, and the townspeople of Twin Peaks reach various mostly unpleasant ends to their stories. Yes. Um, I guess before we get too far into talking about this week's episode, um, for those who have been listening along, and also, I guess for those who, if anyone ever listens to this podcast in the future, it's a strange time for us to be recording this podcast because we we recorded yes. it in part because, like, or we were finally motivated to do this podcast in part because Showtime and David Lynch announced they were doing the new series of Twin Peaks next year, mm-hmm. which then sounded like it was maybe going to fall off a cliff of David Lynch not being involved in madness. But now it's been announced that David Lynch is confirmed, guaranteed to be directing the episodes mm-hmm. that he and Mark Frost wrote and also... That it may be more than nine episodes. Yeah. Which, I don't know. Yeah, that was a vague vague statement by Showtime that there's going to be more. Yeah. Which, you could offer a lot of conjecture into whether or not that was the sticking point for David Lynch, or who knows what the sticking point was, but it sounds like that's resolved. And I'm, especially after this week's episode of Twin Peaks, I'm personally finding myself very fired up over I Twin know, Peaks 2016, yeah. which, is, which is also scary to me, because it could just be complete, a complete disaster. But, like... Mm-hmm. The contrast of this week's episode for me, at least, and it sounds like for you, yeah, relative like the last two compared to the last two months, basically, yeah, has been it was it was like night and day. And also, I'm really excited that we're watching Firewalk with me next week. Me too. Um, yeah, I this it is it is. There is no way to know if the new series is going to be good. Obviously, that's it's evident. But if you watch just the David Lynch directed episode. I mean, if you, I think we've, we talked about this, right? Months and months ago, but that was before our season two slog. If you were to, to go and just watch all of the David Lynch episodes of Twin Peaks, already knowing what happens and therefore not suffering from like missed connections in between, that would be a strong collection of television. And it would probably be about as long, maybe not quite as long as the upcoming series. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, how many do you think? I think probably. Probably about that. About He's only that done number. four or five episodes, I think. Oh, really? In total, Because really? he did episode one and three of the first season. He did episode one of the second season. Oh, he did one more in there somewhere, and he did the last did episode. The, conclu- the, the climax, right? Mark Frost directed that oh, episode. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're so right. So I think, I think, I feel okay. like Lynch did one also. Like he did one of the Herald episodes or something in season mm-hmm. two. I feel like, but he, um, oh, he did one of the mid-season ones. He did the one where uh, Maddie is killed by okay, Leland. Right. Um. But yeah, he not not quite the full like nine that we're coming up with, but sure. it's about it's in that realm of that's a really good yep. chunk of television. Yep, um, and uh, I think that there's just a different. I think that you know we're in an era, especially in film, of just endless reboots and spinoffs and sequels, and I mean just just you know it's not that there's ever not been that, but we are by far in an era that that is just dominates in that way more than any era has in the past um, when it comes to sort of marketing sophistication around it. But in television, I feel like with the current crop of sort of prestige television, there is actually kind of an expectation that you will do that stuff right. You know, until the show, until like you get into shows that end up going three seasons too long and sort of wear out their welcome and everyone kind of gets tired of them. Until you get to that point, I feel like this is essentially a new – this will be seen as kind of a new thing. This isn't like the 12th season of Twin Peaks. This is right. like a big new statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I feel like there's going to be the proper kind of pressure both on Showtime 
and just internally on the creators to do it really well. And I kind of suspect that they will. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we, I don't want to get, well, I guess, sorry, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what exactly to say. This episode of Twin Peaks is often a very maligned episode of Twin Peaks, I think. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Not, I mean, there's people, it's, it's a, it's a definite, I think, love it or hate it episode of Twin okay. Peaks. Like, I think that, yeah, I think it's amazing. A lot of the conversation around this episode is, goes hand in hand with, I think, the talking point that seems to be that David Lynch, like, after a certain point, soured on Twin Peaks or was sort of a reluctant owner mm-hmm. of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Like, I've heard this episode described often as basically David Lynch burning it all down, like mm. killing off characters, having Cooper just scream nonsense at the end or whatever. And mm-hmm. sort of the middle of it seems like I hear it also maligned as just David Lynch being indulgent and making a bunch of nonsense or whatever. But I feel like, well, one, we'll talk about this later in the episode too, but uh, at the recommendation of some people on the forum, I went and read the original shooting script and mm-hmm. a lot of the like sort of burn it down elements mm-hmm. were not just David Lynch coming in and wrecking shop. Like they were in there before he took over and rewrote like half the episode. By Frost, Peyton and Engels. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also we, I mean, this is also, we've talked about this before, but I, I very firmly believe that David Lynch actually loves twin peaks, maybe more than a lot of his other work and feels really personally connected to it. I, I suspect you're correct. Just given the amount of, effort that had to have been required to do all of the stupid logistical work that reader mail that was sent in last week was it about the complete rights madness oh, uh-huh. that that was the fracturing of not even the pilot from the main series but the movie from its own deleted scenes and that like frost and lynch have obviously gone through what has to be the most disgusting amount of legal wrangling where it's like this show was a uh, on one network, but due to something else, a different network owns it. And then a European right. company owns the pilot. Like, and they've <clears throat> yep. consolidated all of that under their own ownership mm-hmm. to then be able to do a new TV. You don't do that if it's a show that you don't like. Yep, like, for sure. If you're David Lynch, you don't do that to just cash out because you're going to be able to get funding for whatever stupid feature film you want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, this episode feels like David Lynch came in and did the best that he could to snatch some grasps of victory from the jaws of defeat that was twin peaks because it feels like sort of almost like returning a sense of dignity to this, to this world. Yeah. And I I know that there's some madness and some incongruous stuff in this episode, but if you, um, it, well, let's talk about our our reactions to the episode before we talk about the production Mm -hmm. realities of this episode, because they are crazy. Definitely. I don't, Um, I want to get into that later for sure. Yep. Um, Yes, as I as I said a couple times already, I thought this episode was incredible. It feels so much more legitimate to me in the sense that this episode, nothing in this episode feels pandering or crowd pleasing or kind of stock television. Um, it is so. It feels like it just has integrity in a way that Twin Peaks does at its best. Um, you know, take taking the sort of setting and formula it establishes but not falling into obvious patterns or i mean it's 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 just really brutal it's a brutal episode not that not that twin peaks is always brutal and not even that it's always brutal when it's at its best but it's one of the things it can be uh and i just like how take no prisoners this episode is i just love how much it says this this is what we're going to do this is how we're going to finish this story um and nothing, nothing is going to sort of dampen that. Yep. I guess this. I can't really. This can't be. I don't know if it can be a criticism of the episode or not for me. But I wish that this was not the last episode of Twin Peaks, or at least that some of the things inside of this episode had not been the last episode of Twin Peaks. Because Could I you feel clarify? all just so much of the stuff that happens when Cooper goes into the Black Lodge. Mm-hmm. So many concepts are introduced inside of this episode that I feel like it would have been to the benefit of the series for them to have been seated earlier. But I know that that just was impossible because David Lynch wasn't involved until this episode. Could you, could you specifically like the doppelganger stuff? Like the, the just like mm. this notion of the, like he goes inside there and then suddenly there are all these very Lynchian versions of sort of revelatory moments or strange, weird mm-hmm. facets of, mm-hmm. of the world and of the characters that are presented only then to be put to bed because it's the last episode. And I, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's Lynch sort of putting his own frosting over the cake that is season two, but right. I wish that he had been there for its construction, basically, if this is where mm-hmm. it ends up. And, like, I think 
that that's one of the reasons I actually think season three or whatever whatever it's going to be called has a pretty good chance of being good because I think that with that foresight and I, I you know I think there are probably some shows that work really well with the kind of reactive like make it as it's going kind of you know I, I don't know I think of a show like The Good Wife which I love which you know like does kind of rip from the headline stuff which often is quite cheesy but it's part of just what that show is you know like it's it also sh- i mean I, i've only seen some episodes of the good wife but it feels like those things happen and then they're okay with folding spin-off from those episodes exactly. into sort exactly. of the exactly. overall they're constructing this just like yeah. constantly accre- accreting you know and it's all but it's also set in the real world which means they're never going to s- just accidentally spin out into into like reaching too far in a supernatural direction, right? Right. Like, but with Twin <laughs> what Peaks, a strange twist that would yeah, be in Good Life. Well, that happens sometimes in television. I feel like even shows that don't start out that way sometimes start to get too far up their own ass. And like that happened a little bit in Twin Peaks. And I think that it 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 is going to be to the benefit of this program to have Frost and Lynch define terms. Yeah. The only at the beginning. The only risk is that it by design. The net result is that it goes up a different ass too far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so who knows? But uh, but I, I totally see what you mean. And, I, you know, on the other hand, like you kind of also say, it's meaningless to even say that, right? Because the reasons that's not the case are so – It's that's not a decision that Lynch could have made in that one episode. Right. That yes. would have had to go back in time and change things mm-hmm. retroactively. But, um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. I wasn't bothered by that because I, I – to me, this episode – wasn't to me didn't feel anyway like the episode was introducing new concepts to me the episode felt like it was an antidote to the disease of constantly introducing new concepts so i took the doppelganger stuff not as like a new property of the black lodge of the world of twin peaks but rather as sort of just a lynchian way of setting this scene mm-hmm. you know you know what i mean so like i don't i to me i and and I'm sure that it that stuff will probably come back in season three. You know, therefore it's in it's in my, fire walk with me. It's I mean, in spoiler. You're right, you're right. for you're, next you're week. Right, you know, right, you're right. You're right. Um, but 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 to me, I just took this episode at at face value as a standalone portrayal of this like episode of Cooper's investigation or the conclusion mm-hmm. of Cooper's investigation. I suppose uh, <laughs> unsuccessful, I guess conclusion, um, as opposed to like an introduction of concepts that will be. That that would have been continued, right? Sure. Because, uh, yeah, that this will actually be a very interesting angle to talk about um, after watching Fire Walk with me, because I think that the Twin Peaks finale is kind of best enjoyed as the very last thing that the very last Twin Peaks thing that ever exists. I love Fire Walk with me, but to me, it feels like almost a different interpretation of Twin Peaks as opposed to something that continues on from the television show. That's, it's, I know that, yeah, I think you and I just don't agree on that, which, oh, is, fine. which is interesting. Well, maybe I won't, maybe I won't agree after watching it again next week. So recently having seen yeah. the finale. I mean, I think when you watched it, you had seen the finale more recently. I had never, oh, no, seen, never seen, I've seen never finale, seen the finale, but now that You're I've right. watched You're the right. finale, having right. watched, having watched Firewalk with me before, mm-hmm. we can talk about this more next week, but Firewalk with me feels very much like just closing a loop on Twin Peaks that David Lynch barely manages right. to connect well, through maybe, this episode. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I'll come around on that next week. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised. Eh. Um, it, it might, I might feel the way I did due to just a function of like the gap in time between. Maybe we're both right. Maybe there's no right. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, that would but, be a dumb thing to have an objective correct I know, answer I know, to. I know. But but I do. But I do anyway. But but just with respect to the the finale itself, I do think that there is value. In receiving it as just like yeah, this the, was also it was intended to be the end of, this, of Twin Peaks of this story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bleak one for sure, but I think it's it's very powerful for it. Yeah. Um. So how do you want to actually talk about this stuff? Because there's the main thread, obviously, which is a huge percentage. Yeah. Of the episode. Th- this episode is is structured really similarly, in in my opinion, to the episode where. Uh, Leland kills Maddie, where it just sort of starts as like boop a doo, just catching yeah. up on some Twin Peaks threads. <laughs> Fuck you, like the and then just yeah. the back two thirds, yeah. just like anyway, yep. Whatever was going to happen, mm-hmm. it is completely hijacked by just yeah. David Lynch doing what he thinks is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, do we want to just get the early stuff closed just, out? I mean, it's not even early stuff. It sort of it it. It, it weaves pepper, in and out, I guess. the entire thing. But yeah, do you want to talk about the various conclusions to characters' individual Yeah, I think we should, just, yeah. we should just get those going. So we open with Andy and Lucy. Um, this no, was, we open with... Uh, we don't. 
Oh no, you're right. God, sorry. <laughs> I was like, no, we don't. And then I realized I was looking at my notes from last week. I'm like, we open with Leo tied up. Oh no, <laughs> never mind. Well, you know what we do open with? We open with starring Eric DeRay. Well, as always. I want. I can't. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Andy and Lucy, you know, those just like a nice little scene. It felt pretty classic, Andy and Lucy. Um, one of the things I actually really liked about this, and and I don't know who wrote this line. Um, if it was Frost, Aiden, uh, Frost, Peyton, Engels, Lynch, whoever. But uh, there was something that I really, really liked when Lucy is proposing this reality in which she has to have her baby in the middle of this terrible event. And they're stuck in an elevator. And what would Andy do? And Andy, Andy says, I'd help you have that baby in that elevator right in front of God and everybody. And the thing I love so much about that line is that really feels like the kind of line that a, a very earnest small town guy like Andy would actually say, yep. but didn't really, but kind of had been lost from his character, um, I think, in season two, as he's more of just, just the punchline guy, yeah. kind of goofball. He's always been the bumbling goofball for sure, but there, there's a, there's a kind of sweet naivete, like, yeah, Andy turned into Andy turned into sort of bumbling savant, and it's nice to have that sort of more grounded line back in his mm-hmm. in his character. Yeah, something that connects to something that. He probably heard from his parents. He probably grew up in a religious home. And, like, that's just the kind of thing that was around. And, like, that's not hammered on at all. But it's just a nice little touch yep. that makes him feel like more of a person to me. And I, I really missed things like that. Yep. And that's all I had to say about that scene. Yep. Also, well, okay, one other weird thing. Uh, Lucy, are we meant to suspect that Lucy knew the lights were going to go out ahead of time? Like, she foresaw something? Because he's like... I kept thinking the lights were going out. The lights are going out. And then they did. Mm-hmm. Why did she think that before they did? I don't know. <laughs> I don't Weird. I understand what that meant. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, let's see here. So there's the double R where we see kind of a few different things. We see the Briggses back together. Um, Bobby proposes to Shelly. That weird employee Heidi comes in continually still giggling at everything. Yeah. And everyone did an OU face at Heidi apparently. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> And then, oh man, okay, so, so okay. Well, Sarah Palmer, com- Palmer comes in to give uh, Briggs a, like a fucked up demonic sounding message about being in the Black Lodge. That was crazy because we have not seen her in a long time. No, and I wonder if that was a David Lynch decision to bring her back. Also, Renette Pulaski showed up in this yes, episode, which was a yes. surprise. The, I I feel like this stuff must have at least in part been the work of. Uh, of uh, Lynch or perhaps Frost or, or both of them or whatever, because it really, really felt like all of these key season one concepts were, were reintroduced. There was the mention just the, obviously we see Laura Palmer herself, but, but before then just the mention of Laura Palmer was almost shocking to me. It's so rare. That happened last week though too, didn't it? Annie said Laura Palmer's name out loud last week. Yeah, for the, that's the, true. It was. It felt a little different coming from Annie's mouth and yeah. and being this just like goofy. But this like, is like you mean like Laura Palmer, but act. like someone explicitly yeah. referring to like the the killed Laura Palmer, whatever it was. Um, and it was shocking last week too. Let's be honest. Like I was, that was still kind of surprising. But this episode just felt like it was many a, of these things. It was a reminder kind of, of how potent that yes, stuff still is, even I mean. after all this time to see yeah. Sarah Palmer back, to see people mention Laura Palmer, to see Renette Pulaski called into the sheriff's department to like identify a piece of evidence in right. this case was yep. like, oh man, yep. like that actually, right. like it. Remember actually... this all in this fiction of the show happened a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that so that was that was something. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about in this scene, I don't know if you have other stuff. But a, maybe my one of my favorite directorial touches in this entire episode was that Bobby. So Bobby proposes Shelley, which you know who the hell knows why why this is, she's still going along with this stuff. But anyway, she mentions Leo and she says, you know, I still have Leo's ring. And Bobby goes, you know, Leo's out in the woods, probably have the probably having the time of his life. And then there's <laughs> like a one second cross cut to Leo just <laughs> with the twine on his tooth. That's the only shot of Leo in this episode, it's isn't the it? Only shot of Leo in this episode. And <laughs> I love it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but possibly the only sort of visual gag cross cut in the entirety of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Has that ever been done before? I don't know show? if it has or not. And I love that it's David Lynch who did it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I did like a family guy joke, basically. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, that is just not something it actually that cracked is in this me show's up. vocabulary. 
the tone of so much of this episode still is insane in a way that Twin Peaks can be insane, but a very, such a different type of insane than a stupid stick and tarantula trap that to have David Lynch have to be like, let's have the time of his life. Cross ah. cut to, <laughs> meanwhile, a man is in a cabin with a yeah. tarantula trap attached right. to his tooth. Right. Anyway, uh-huh. that, I mean... That said, you can't. You can't. Well, it's not even. You don't even see the tarantula trap. You, you just, just see know. You just see Leo with a string coming out of his tooth. Of Leo's face with his eyes rolled up and a string coming out and him vibrating. <laughs> I know. Like, admittedly, it's not. It's not that Lynch distances dis- distances himself entirely from that goofy garbage in this episode because we the because. No, that's not even what I was getting at. I know. I, yeah. It's well, just everything else in that whole double R scene is very far away from that wacky, wacky Leo. But yeah, no, it is just, it is a hilarious cutaway. Um, later on, a bomb explodes, a cartoon roadrunner bomb explodes in a bank. Though, so fly through the air in slow motion. <laughs> what an odd, that was maybe the single weirdest thing in the entire episode. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about the double R stuff? No, not, no. Okay. Um, all right. So what else do we have here? Uh, oh, there's Nadine and Mike. This was actually a shockingly ba- like sad state of affairs, I think. Mike saying, I love you, and Nadine. Yeah, Mike just, saying, I love you. And then and Nadine is like, what is she doing here about Norma? Yeah. yeah, just everyone, no one in that scene comes out well. Everyone has gone from this state of basically bliss last episode, where it's like Mike and Nadine, just against all odds, have fallen in love. Uh, Ed and Norma, after decades of kind of essentially miserable lives have finally reunited and now just in a second that is it all unravels yep and mike is just back to being kind of goofy high school student bummed out that the woman he loves doesn't even recognize him uh you know nadine is is just ruined completely ruined yeah even her drape runners are gone right ed and norma have to we assume go back to their sort of unfulfilling lives like nothing Nothing here turns out well for these people. What a what a bummer. Yep. After, you know, almost two entire seasons worth of kind of madcap, just bonkers comedy with, with Nadine and Mike and this whole thing, um, <laughs> the way it ends is just such a bummer. Yep. And that's, I don't know, that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, uh, is the next, I think the next thing in line is the Hayward mm-hmm. and Ben yeah. Horn thing. Yeah. This I thought was an amazing... This was actually pretty early in the episode still. And uh, I mean, all this stuff was that we're talking about. Well, uh, you know, I think the the Nadine stuff was before this. And then uh, and then this this came on. And this really I remembered a lot of the Black Lodge stuff from this episode, but I forgot all of these little individual conclusions. And I remember just thinking as as we were halfway through this Hayward scene, like, oh, my God, they're not pulling any punches in this episode, are they? Literally. Um, Yeah. Well, this scene. Yeah, I liked I liked seeing the uh, seeing Doc Hayward and Ben Horn share a really intense scene because they're two of the strongest actors oh, on yeah. the show. At this this point. was an amazing moment. Um, for also, I noticed that when Hayward. David Lynch took over and um, Maddie was in the show, it seems like he made her snap her glasses and take them away. And Ben Horn has not had his glasses for for like months of Twin Peaks with Lynch back. He's like, get those glasses back on Ben Horn's face. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's pretty funny. I didn't. I didn't even. Yeah, Ben Horn did not get to chomp a cigar in this scene because he definitely did not have the upper hand through any of this scene. Mm-hmm. But he definitely got to wear his '80s businessman glasses again, <laughs> um, only to get yeah. basically get punched in the face and yeah. knocked to the ground. Man, um, what is uh, what is the actor who plays Hayward? His name is is, Fr- is Mark Frost's father. What's his name? I can't remember. In any case, he knocked this out of the park. His face just throughout this scene was incredible. Just the mix of emotions going through so i mean i guess predominantly anger but the way that he played it the sort of anger combined with bewilderment and helplessness and and like boiling over frustration was incredible i mean just some of the best um i mean he he really has brought some of the best most subtle acting to this show which is weird because he's a fairly minor role and he rarely his has presence, more than his, a couple minutes of screen time yeah his presence over season two grew in the absence of a bunch of the characters yeah. from season one falling out of the show though yeah 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 yeah, yeah he was basically a, a background character in season mm-hmm. one for sure um, actually, you know what? That's a thing that I I, I kind of want to bring up. Well, you know what? I'll wait. I'll wait until we're, until we're at the end. I want to talk about kind of this and season three and, and some stuff, but I'll, I won't. I'm not going to derail. Okay. 
Um, so we have the uh, Packard stuff, which crosses with the Audrey conclusion. Right. I guess. I, I don't know what we're meant to take from that plot wise. But uh, so the main thing I want to talk about here in the whole scene at the savings and loan is David Lynch's clear and abiding love for doddering old men who slowly walk <laughs> from one end of a room to another end of the room, hunched over while the camera follows them the entire time. And there's no music and we just hear their feet on the ground and we have to watch it again and again and I again. Know. David Lynch fucking loves it. And we it's, still get the room service guys back in this episode. I know again. it's, it's, it's strange because that, that that fascination with just a man awkwardly walking around, it's a thing that like David Lynch movies and Austin Powers movies or something have in common, <laughs> it seems like. Just like right. watching an awkward thing happen for 30 times longer than it needs to yes. so that it's like yes. stops being funny, starts being funny, definitely stops being funny, then just becomes completely ludicrous. Right, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and honestly it's kind of used to similar effect. Yeah. I mean used for for different larger sort of yeah. you know put in a large different larger context. But sort of the arc but, of a joke basically right. is is exactly the same. Did you notice that Andrew Packard and the um bank manager basically have the same glasses and then you yeah. can't tell whose glasses are flying through the air. I wonder if David Lynch did that on purpose. <laughs> like what a strange choice that would have been to be like maybe Andrew Packard's alive because that was actually the glasses of the right. bank manager. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't understand yeah. what yeah. the point of that was yeah. or it was just bad costuming. Are we meant to assume Audrey is alive? I mean she's coming back for season three I guess. Yeah, I, who's to say? I don't think it really matters. No, Well, I mean it's – it doesn't accept that it will be just conclusively answered in a year. Yeah. That right? Like it it would it sort of feels like it matters more now. But I guess it doesn't matter that right this second. I mean it also it also doesn't matter to me because I found this thing so stupid yeah, that I don't the, care it what low, it means. It was definitely the just to, that that moment was the low point. Everything leading up to that moment was incredible to me with just the super duper wide shot. Of the guy pacing. Yeah, and that forth. really awkwardly built bank. Audrey chaining herself to the vault, but in the most meaningless way because right. she can just, just open the, the door to let them in. Open. Yeah. yeah. Uh, man, okay, I'm sorry to keep talking about the guy walking back and forth. But this <laughs> it is, it is, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you, in the broad strokes, this is clearly a David Lynch episode just for a lot of the, the reasons that we've talked about in terms of larger sensibility. And then I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a lot more when we talk about the Black Lodge stuff. But in terms of individual just directorial moments, the way he directs that guy to walk around, it, it, is, it, is, it is as though David Lynch was so in love with, with that um, – the uh, room service guy from – who directed those guys? Was that David Lynch? David Lynch. That was the, okay. episode, I, the first episode of season so. two. I just, I just yeah. wanted to make sure I wasn't, wasn't creating things in my head. Um, it's as though he was so in love with that, which includes things like the guy sort of – Starting to walk away, catching himself, turning back, looking at Cooper again, giving the thumbs up, turning around again, walking by, and and we're just capturing all of this with no cut. Um, it's as though he he took that and wanted to just blow it up times ten because the guy does all of that exact same stuff in the bank. He where he starts walking back towards his own desk and then kind of stops and sort of turns around and starts takes three steps back I know. and stops again and turns around and then walks the rest of the way and then even then says oh it's you to someone like off screen which is also what the room service guy does as i recall right he yeah, sees it's someone from outside it's crazy but i mean i loved it i thought it was such a hilarious weird moment of symmetry in one of the in one of the plot lines that has absolutely nothing to do with any of the supernatural stuff or the black lodge or anything it's yep. just old men, I guess, do this in Twin Peaks, whether they're dream people or not. Right. Yeah, no. But then, anyway, so, and then, sorry, I'm so fascinated no, by it. It was like just it's my good. favorite thing. But then, your fascination is crushed yeah. when a stupid cartoon bomb blows up Pete, Andrew Packard, and Audrey, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the bank manager, maybe. Right. Imagine if two pairs of glasses had been flying in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dollar bill, too. Oh, yeah. A single, a single bill. <laughs> Who knows how that happened? That's Twin Peaks. Uh, 2016 is actually going to be about Cooper investigating how Twin Peaks Savings and Loan was actually uh, 
just run dry and had no money and there was a huge fraud. <laughs> the Ghostwood estate story is going to just keep going because mm-hmm. they oh they funneled God. all their money into Ghostwood. It's it's a, just speaking of that explosion. It's really fascinating how totally uninterested David Lynch as a director consistently is in any kind of naturalism in effects work. Just zero interest. You know, I mean, like zero competence and zero interest. I shouldn't say zero competence because sometimes he does things to really good effect, but they tend to be things that have to do with like lighting and, mm-hmm. you know, things that are that have to do with light and shadow. And the, the, as the, opposed the to, contrast like, of weird theatrical or, lighting is something that he's really good yeah, he's at. He's excellent but. at that. But like when it comes to compositing elements or doing sort of larger scale effects, he just doesn't seem to care at all. No. Which, you know, whatever. So, you know, fine. Um, I think that's all of the side story conclusions in this episode, as, as I recall. Uh, that is potentially the case, yeah. Because um, that one came pretty late in the episode. So uh, we've got the Black Lodge. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this started out with some suspicious stuff where I thought in the, in the sheriff's station, when they're talking, when they're sort of puzzling out what to do, and then they... Then oh, all the Arthurian yeah, stuff. Glastonbury Grove. Of course, the legendary resting place of King Arthur. What do you mean? Of course. What that's actually with anything. That's actually vestigial stuff from the. That stuff is called back in the script before Lynch entirely rewrote it. Oh. in a way that is really unsatisfying. But okay, well, yeah, no, you can tell me about that later. It just it just turns. It seems right now like it's more sort of like Wyndham Earl grade nonsense. Mm, of just exactly yeah. Um, I really liked the imagery that. Like their discussion about it early on is dumb, but I love the actual location and the way Lynch oh, shot it's so it. So good with of just the, the little the tiny ring and, yeah. and and the mm-hmm. the really wispy, super bright mm-hmm. plants against just the blackness of the woods, and yeah, yeah, and then the curtains just showing up in the middle of the woods like mm-hmm. that. It's so good looking. Just that staging, yeah, it just that, that's like Twin Peaks prime imagery. That's actually, I think, a case. You know, just to connect this to what I was just saying. That's a case where it the the staging of that scene might actually benefit. From from Lynch's lack of interest in complicated, convincing special effects, because I think you could have done that in a way. Uh, certainly, someone now, uh, certainly now, and and probably then too, could have could have constructed that in a way where the um, the curtains like really melded, like sort of appeared out of the trees in a really subtle way. Right, just fascinated, being fascinated with like the billowing of the cloth and like it's sort of just doing right, weird, right. weird. But without that to, without the ability to do that in an incredibly sophisticated way or without the, the, the interest in doing so, who knows which, um, it forced instead the, it entirely has to rest on the quality of the juxtaposition of the photography of the curtains and the photography of the woods and how like just the framing of the scene was that actually the, a special effect? I couldn't even tell how it was no, done. It was just it, cross cutting between. It was just fade. It was what Lynch always does, which is the he just fades thing up. You do when you're in high school and you have a camcorder. Yeah, he just faded up. You, sh- you shoot two scenes in the same place and you fade between them and it looks like the thing appears. Okay, so he the, so they did bring the curtains in behind the trees and just shot it practically. That was what I couldn't tell if there was like I think cheese, so. Yeah, that's what I it looked like. Wrong, but that's it, what it looked like. It I mean, maybe great. they did it with a green screen, but like nah, I, who knows? It doesn't matter but the point is that it, it, it was just a very looks, simple version of it yeah and it only works because it was such a well-chosen image that's what i was trying to get at is that yeah it y- you could you could do that in a more sophisticated way and now, you can take two images that are unrelated and make them look very convincing yeah now, now. lynch's best special effects are to just do something really strange with spotlights and like change the lighting of the scene mm-hmm. and then also cross dissolve with the lighting change to something weird happening. And it always looks organic as hell and just really mm-hmm. strange and unique. Yep. And this was that to the max. Yeah. This was yeah. one of the absolute best examples of it. I kept missing the moment where the, they like, I kept being surprised by like, Oh yeah, there's the, the curtains, the curtains there are now. there now. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Um, maybe that's because I'm always taking notes on these episodes, but <laughs> But I just love how it looks. It's so good that seeing someone walk into the curtains in the woods, just ugh, yeah, it's, it's like that's yeah, um, and yes, yeah, so, I mean the the first that oh, obviously oh and, go ahead. I'm sorry before we actually I want to back up before that. Um, there was uh, there were two moments of people in the woods with flashlights. There's Winnemerl and Annie first, mm-hmm. and then there's Cooper and Truman next, and in both cases. Um, we see faces illuminated by flashlights. We see Annie's face illuminated by a flashlight and we see Cooper's face illuminated by a flashlight, which one is, is a kind of nice little 
Echo, because th- those characters are obviously connected. Um, and also, it just looks fantastic. I mean, speaking of Lynch and Light, it yeah, looks the, the flashlight so of the wood stuff is also a callback to some of the way yes, earlier exactly. Laura Palmer right. uh, <clears throat> running era through the woods. stuff of running yes, through the woods. Yeah, exactly. And um, and also. Uh, like when they're sneaking up on Bobby and Leo and the drug mm-hmm. bust stuff earlier. Right. But just when, it, when characters venture out into the woods in Twin Peaks, especially right. earlier on, it always felt the way that yes. it feels in this episode. With really with lighting that is really, really unsophisticated, which ends up being really striking and feeling very, very um, shocking and surprising because it's so unlike how darkness is shot in most film and television. I know, where you have this very slick artificial lighting that's meant to look naturalistic but this is yep. actually not i like it also just because it it um for me the way that i guess especially lynch but i guess sort of twin peaks house style at its best shoots being out in the woods in the darkness of the flashlight is the most sort of emotionally true to the feeling of being mm-hmm. out in the woods like when you're camping Definitely. and yes. like my only experiences of this are like you're camping and you have to go pee at two in the morning and you have to like walk 200 feet away from your campsite or whatever mm-hmm. and it's all that you have is just literally nothing, and then you re- you're just a revealed pool of light. Like yeah, how mm-hmm. close up strong your flashlight is, but how useless it is about <laughs> you know ten feet away from you, and mm-hmm. just it's scary as yeah, hell. It just and it disappears, just, in and the darkness. Th- that feeling of just all you see of the woods in Twin Peaks in these moments are just like three feet in front of you, overexposed, and then or nothing else. Yeah. yeah, or just yeah. a face, yeah, or like so good. a little bit of a of a body part close up. Like it's it's really <laughs> right. nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I absolutely adore that stuff. So. Uh, and then, I mean, th- this stuff is just so, it's so strong. It's such a strong series of, of shots and, and lighting setups because then the next thing we're in, we're just in total Lynch land. Like, and there's only one moment of the thing I'm describing, but it is, it is so heavily David Lynch for me, which is when we first go inside, this is the Black Lodge, right? This is what this is. The Black Lodge. It's not a stupid question to ask. But the, the Red Room, basically? Yeah. I, it seems like at this point they are one and the same. Yeah. Um, I, I also – that was another thing that was not the case in the original script. But we'll mm. talk about that mm-hmm. at the end of everything. But yeah, okay. it seems like at so, this point just whatever the Black Lodge and I guess maybe the White Lodge and the Red Room, all of these things just seem to be this weird unending space of hallways and sitting yeah. rooms made out of curtains okay. and well, that's, that's checkerboard totally floor. So in any yeah. case, in, this, in the Red Room, I'll just call it the Red Room because who knows. So – the first moment in the red room, there's a real, there's like a very, very Lynchian moment where we actually shift back and forth just quickly for only a few seconds between the mm-hmm. heavily saturated, really rich colors that we get for the entire rest of the episode. These mm-hmm. like rich, deep reds and a very desaturated version of the same scenes where everything is muted and almost colorless. And the strobing is on top of that. And that only happens when Cooper first You mean the crazy, just the strobe light stuff? No, I don't mean just the strobe lights because that Hmm. that continues forever. But right at the beginning of it, there's a moment where we quickly shift from a really desaturated version of all those reds into a more saturated version. I totally missed that. Weird. Just that one time at the beginning. But it it really feels – it's very lynching. It's like Mulholland Drive or something. Like it's – and it's just for that one moment. But it, it felt like such an intentional lynch move. That I that I it was very striking to me, um, and then obviously the entire rest of it we get the, the the strobe lights and the you know the the top down crazy angles and and all the things that, right. that and he, he is known for, yeah, and, and and also sorry to sorry to keep talking about just the Lynch parts of this room, but like I guess that's what there is to talk about for most of the rest of the episode. It is such 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 a different version of mysticism than. These sort of Peyton Engels, probably Frost stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like Lynch's version of this is so decoupled. I mean, I know that Lynch personally is influenced by um, things like Eastern mysticism, you know, as is Frost. And and um, I, but the way that Lynch ends up actually evoking this stuff in his work is very, very, very different. It is not the sort of notion of like a timeless place that that is like sort of um either medieval or kind of pre-society it's always something that includes lots of modern trappings of you know like weird combinations of things that are not out of time they're out of a very very specific time like that is that is how lynch does this mysticism he always really anchors this stuff in tropes that are familiar to us and that's very different from how all of this Black Lodge stuff has been presented leading up to this episode where you get the sense it's more of this kind of like 
Native American kind of like earth stuff. It's been here forever. Like, or maybe there's like some kind of like medieval thing. It's, right. It's very, it's just a very, very different approach to myth and mysticism. And it's, it's sort of shocking to just to barrel right into that after he, what we've had in the last several episodes. He's also just so much less interested in this stuff being like, it seems like they've been playing it up as like a place of torment or a place of rest and peace or of like mm-hmm. anything to do with judgment or right. good and mm-hmm. evil. And it's just sort of like, no, this is just a place that is other yes, where sort exactly, of yes. the complete crazy contrasts that exist are just exposed and heightened. Like mm-hmm. anything, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of goofy duality stuff that Lynch is interested in that is all over Twin Peaks. But this feels like it, you know, it's not, there's never a clean line of of judgment about it in Lynch's right. version of it. Whereas sure. it very much feels like, I mean, the mythology this whole season has been presented as there is a black lodge and mm-hmm. a white lodge. And like and only someone, you know, pure of heart or whatever. I can't remember what yeah, it was, but, but like, something like that. Mm, yeah. That does not seem to be at all what is is going what's that that's not what it's about it turns out mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and then the just in terms of additional kind of lynch touchstones when he when cooper first go, i think it's when he first goes in right there's the sort of sultry vocal music with the 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 beyond the sycamores song yeah. which i guess Coop, um, i'm sorry lynch wrote the lyrics and and battle Menti wrote the music mm-hmm. which is a you know this is a that is just a classic lynch thing you know you see it in blue velvet there's this and and also earlier in twin peaks um this these very sultry vocal tracks that are very heavily produced but but also are meant to be coming from within the world mm-hmm. um where you you sort of cut between it being part of the soundtrack and then also like really intense focus on the actual singer in the world it, it's it's such it's just such a lynch thing and it was it was yeah, and it's 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 there it seems like just to set a mood and to provide interesting staging. I mean, maybe there's more meaning to it, but sort of, I think other, no, I don't really think that I think people who weren't Lynch would get really bogged down by like, why isn't the singer performing backwards? Like Cooper isn't backwards. Some things are just forwards and some things are backwards. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's just whatever seems right to Lynch in the moment for yes. what happens in this place. And all of it is just meant to like both be really engrossing and sort of pull you into it from a sort of sensory standpoint, but mm-hmm. also Almost you have to just observe it as a frame inside of a television and not yeah. treat it as an actual space and as mm-hmm, an actual sure. reality because yeah, it, don't, it's not. Yeah, don't try to puzzle out the rules for this because they're – I'm sure Lynch has – There's there's some internal consistency to it but also it, right, it but it's just, not what the point of it is. Yeah, and yeah. it's um, – yeah. Um, but So much of the rest of this stuff is – I mean, I don't even know how to talk about it, <laughs> you know, part of what makes it so interesting is that it's just a barrage of imagery and callbacks and new things. And I mean, it's, this is a, a, a big, because you're, you're right. I'm going to just bring up a random detail that I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Lynch does make the explicit connection that the giant and the rooms of his waiter are basically connected, presumably in a similar way to, uh, Mike and Bob and Leland and all these other sort of like mm-hmm. things appear in two different forms. Did, but did you did you think that it was deliberate that all the doppelganger characters have eye tinted contact lenses yes. that give them the exact same eye color as the giant? Oh, I didn't think about the giant in that way. You're, yeah, I'm sure that you're probably because right. like it feels like the giant because the giant has that crazy notable eye color, yeah, light and, blue eyes. Yeah, yeah those are just really pale blue eyes. But all of the characters oh, the that are that are a doppelganger yeah. have mm-hmm. have the yeah have the eyes that are the exact same color as that character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, That's a really good point. I don't know what that means. No, I don't even think it has to necessarily. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, Lynch explicitly uses the giant and the rooms of waiter to sort of introduce the idea that we are the same person. Right. Yes. And then you start seeing characters that either have the eyes that you know them as, or they have the eyes of basically the giant character. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's just an interesting visual tie-in but um yeah it doesn't i don't know if it means anything explicit right 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 i just i wondered if it was deliberate or not no i mean it's definitely a, a really compelling image yeah and it probably it pro- again it probably is significant but you know i think it's i but i, I don't know we, we have no way 
it's like figuring it out really right yeah beyond hypothesis but it's but i it's great i, I mean i love how all this stuff looks yeah. what was your take on all of that stuff on sort of cooper wandering the space and finding multiple versions of past and present characters and mm-hmm. sort of like just i mean i sort of just took it all in as a weird sort of <laughs> totally disturbing pastiche of stuff and sort of yeah. i mean it all it felt like it was a lot of just sort of reverberations of things that had happened over the course of the mm-hmm, show mm-hmm. But it was very non-explicit for me, and I don't know if you had it, like what your takeaway from all of that stuff was. Yeah, I mean that. I I think I sort of received it the same way. I I didn't really um, make any strong attempt to puzzle through it in a in a linear logical manner. I you know I mean I could make the observation that's sort of obvious, and I think practically anyone would make, and you probably I think already said in this episode is that this is sort of a a place beyond time. You know this is. Just a place that is other, that is a a kind of dark reflection of our world, you know. And I th- I think that that's that's that is gotten at right from the beginning of this series, really. Um, I think you know, in the way people talk about the woods and and Twin Peaks, and you know, it's the it's it is the it is the weird dark mirror realm of ours. And I I don't know if, I don't know how much more you have to pick it apart beyond that because I think I think beyond that you're in you're just in David Lynch's subconscious and, and in his just imagery that he, that he generates, you know, I, I don't like the thought that it has to be. So, uh, I mean, you're parsed more than your that. read, I guess then is probably close to mine, which is that all that this, I mean, not all of this is in a dismissive way, but as far as just, if you want to look at it from a like plot standpoint, right. it's yes. Cooper steps into the madness that has been alluded to forever. And it is maddening. Yes. Yes, I, mean, I, like, <laughs> I think that's about it, right? I mean, yeah. but we we get the sense that this is the realm in which Bob is is native, and you know, in in doing this, Cooper has essentially damned himself. And like, you know, ever since the first second that they announced uh, Twin Peaks season three, like that's the one kind of plot, plot, plot question that like. I think probably anyone who's seen this episode, I guess you didn't because this yeah. is so funny that I've uh, known, I've known what the last shot okay, of Twin okay, Peaks okay. and the last line of dialogue is. And also, um, again, don't want to talk too, about it too much till next week, but I've seen fire walk with me, which right. makes some okay. explicit mention to some of the mm-hmm. contents of, of the end of Twin Peaks. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the one thing that is like hu- a huge outstanding, like big question mark is what the hell I mean, what does this mean right. for Cooper over the next 25 years? Let's let's talk about that more next week, I think. Okay, sure. Because I think... Yeah, go, that's fine. Um, to- totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, beyond that, like, this is... this is, You know, it's what you said, I suppose. It was a... Uh, it was a... Rem- like, I, I wish that Leland had had more than one line in it, although I liked that it was just... I guess it was the doppelganger of Leland who showed up, because it was the blue-eyed, yeah. weird Leland. And all he says, I never killed anybody, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But... Um, it was seeing him even for half a second was really nice, but it was seeing all of the, the, um, all the stuff with Laura was such a great reminder oh, man, of how crazy intense. that actress can be. Yes. And that got me pumped for next week also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But just the crazy, like the Laura doppelganger coming in and just screaming wildly yes. was just like, Whoa! And another thing I, lo- I loved Whoa! about that, that it, that it was definitely a, a, so you can do, do do this different ways directorially is when she is when she starts screaming and moving towards the camera, mm-hmm. which, you know, in general, is something Lynch loves. Um, the typical horror treatment of that these days, I think, would be for the person to person to move towards the camera very, very quickly and then have it cut as though they were going to really like- slam into the camera. But it cuts before that's possible. Right. But the Lynch version of it is for her to approach slightly slower and then get up to the camera and then just keep screaming yeah. <laughs> in your face with the camera not moving. And oh my god, it's terrifying. Yep. I mean, I, I there are moments in this episode that are re- that are genuinely unnerving. I was sitting there watching it in a, a dark room at like eleven thirty p.m. It's like, oh my god, this is intense. Yep. Um, I mean, you want to jump to the end? You want to talk? I mean, there's like. I I the thing that I was not expecting as a person who had not seen the last two episodes was that David Lynch would direct anything that had Wyndham Earl in it, and it was so weird. And did not none of it ever matched for me. Like Wyndham Earl, still even in the hands of David Lynch, didn't feel right. But I liked basically that Wyndham Earl tried to do his one scene really of any like 
content in the Black Lodge was for him to to try and do something, and then for Bob to basically show up and go, no, yeah. like yeah. no. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but, that was kind of a that was. I wonder if that. Eh, I mean, it's probably pointless to try and read. If that's commentary, one to one, yeah, right. But you could you could do the facile commentary read of it, right? As David Lynch showing up and being like, "No, Bob is the villain, not this guy." Yeah, it kind of felt that way. And I mean, we should we should talk about the script versus Lynch's mm-hmm. execution of it in a, in a few minutes, I mm-hmm. guess. But um, do you want to just talk about whatever about how's Annie? <laughs> you, like that's yeah. the that's what's left, right? Yeah, is is the end, of, right? And I mean, I, what do you, I don't know. I have no idea what to say about it. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I guess it's it's funny because I um, there's all this stuff with people having these doppelgangers and sort of two forms of people co- yeah. ex- mm-hmm. is coexisting inside of the red room or the black lodge or whatever. And then Cooper wakes up, and I guess we're meant to not know which Cooper came out. Right is sort of the. I mean, if you mean until the last scene, until the last shot. Well, is that because we see Bob in the mirror? I guess right, but I, I guess my, I don't, I don't know what sort of like. I mean, I've seen Fire Walk with Me, so I, I, I guess I'm meant to assume things from Fire Walk with Me, but just within this episode, it's never made clear to me whether or not what it means if sort of Bob is inside of you or has possessed you relative to this notion of there being sort of these two forms of you that exist in, mm-hmm. in the black lodge and stuff. And it's like, does, are we seeing Cooper corrupted by Bob? Are we seeing just a different Cooper? Like what, what does it all mean? I don't, I don't actually, okay, mean, yeah, that's but, fair. but it's I, funny, I mean, I guess the, the, this up because Sarah had the same sort of question when we watched the end of this last night. And I think the assumption is just the wrong Cooper comes back basically. But I mean, yeah, I the, mean my, it, it, it feels I, even uh, before long before I saw, I, you know, I, I saw this episode, this episode years before I ever watched fire walk with me. And before, so I'm not even taking that into account. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not, you don't need to say like, we'll talk about it later. Cause I'm just talking about yeah. the reaction I've always had since before I saw that film. I've always, 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 always just assumed, and maybe I've looked at it more simplistically than you guys, but like, I've never assumed anything other than Bob is straight up possessing Cooper the same way he possessed Leland in right. the past. And he is just there residing in Cooper now and will manifest himself at moments. And I mean, I I've never assumed anything more subtle than that. Right. Yeah. I, I that's, that's basically my assumption as well. Um, it just, the question of, does that mean that the unpossessed version of Cooper continues to exist the way that we sort of have seen that weird shadow Leland walking around in that space I don't know if there's an answer to that that's in, in meaningful that space, or not. May, maybe so, but in the real world, I don't know if that's real. In the real world, it seems like it's just Cooper is now in the place that Leland was when we, when right, we were introduced exactly. to him in season we're, one. We're probably most of the time Cooper's personality is is, is you know is is in control, but but there's Bob always a little always, bit of a smirk yes, hiding behind right, him from and, now on. Yes, yeah. which is always waiting to to blow up into something sinister. Right, because like Cooper wakes up and genuine Cooper seems to say, "How's Annie?" and then Bob. Well, then he says, I have to brush my teeth. And then even the second time he says, I have to brush my teeth, it already has. It feels like, yeah, it feels like, right. Yeah. And then when he says, how's Annie over and over, that's basically Bob, that's Bob just taking a big dump on actual Cooper for having any sentimentality for Annie. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. 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 And And it also feels a little bit like David Lynch uh, taking a dump on Cooper for having any sentimentality over Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Is, is, uh, that, that reminds me is, do we know if Heather Graham is on on board to return my assumption did do they specifically say that annie's alive in yeah, the end they of the episode she'll be fine she's in the hospital okay. she'll be fine who knows if that's true or man whatever, but. because yeah i it didn't visually look like she was going to be fine but no, the script like says she was dead the script says that she's fine yeah i mean the the, the dialogue in the episode right. says she's fine i couldn't remember what the case whether that was the case or not because in the script she's explicitly alive and recovering in the hospital yeah and i think also we're we're meant to i mean doesn't yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't. Wh- I haven't heard mention of Heather Graham in terms of Twin Peaks twenty sixteen. I really <laughs> hope that she is not and that yeah. she died. <laughs> Heather, Heather. I'm so fascinated by by Heather Graham's television appearances because I, not just television actually for that matter, but just her career in general. I find very fascinating because I don't think she's a she's a very great actress. But what's funny is that she seems to have really good taste, or maybe she's just lucked out with things heather graham is consistently i mean i'm sure she's been in plenty of bad things too but like heather graham is in a lot of just weird interesting cult things that i really really like including just weird british comedies 
television, like under the radar television series <laughs> in the UK that never even got imported to this country, but that she just shows up in. Um, and it's, it's really odd. Like she's in a lot of things that are just really, really good. And it makes me think she probably likes really good stuff. Like she as an actress, like as a right. human being probably really actually has a good sensibility for like interesting but she often stuff. comes in really flat yeah but her, her often she like the actual performances she delivers are just not not that compelling it's a funny it's just a funny like combination of things that, that I've, I've observed specifically in heather graham for a long time and i just find it kind of interesting yep uh do you want to do you want to get a quick rundown of some weird stuff from the shooting yeah. script yeah go for it um because it's actually um Lost in the movies, the uh, guy who posts a ton of stuff in our forums about sort of the the behind the scenes history of Twin Peaks posted a link to the Frost Peyton Engels shooting script, which Lynch basically ripped the back half of out of entirely and reshot. It sounds like all of the stuff that takes place in the red room, um, from what he said in the forums, Lynch basically shot over a twenty four hour manic session of just oh, like wow. brings the whole cast in. And just doesn't stop filming until it's done, including like people just oh. bringing in props ad hoc as needed, and yeah. all like it sounds like that is crazy, but it's because um, including the armless babe statue. I have, I have no idea. Well, that's <laughs> isn't that statue already? That statue was in the in the. There have been weird. There's weird statuary in the red room in, in the earliest appearances. I guess that's true. Did we ever mention that that's like Gordon Cole refers to the no weird without arms and huh. in the double R? Yeah, that there's a there's a there's a Venus de Milo in there, huh? Yeah. Um, the Black Lodge, as it appeared in the original shooting script, did like the the script even does not explicitly call out the curtains appearing behind the trees. It, it calls out like a rip in space time that opens that Cooper jumps into and like grabs, um. Wyndham Earl by the ankle and they barely go in together, oh, and then it closes shut and Truman can't get in. Wow, classic 80s version of this. Yeah, and then Amazing. the Black Lodge also includes, like, um, it's not just explicitly the Red Room. It also includes, like, a shadow version of the Great Northern, where Cooper talks to a clerk and becomes a child, and his father appears. And the script wow. also explicitly calls out, though, that when Cooper first shows up, it's cross-cutting between black and white and color. So it's interesting to me that Lynch kept the weird saturation stuff. Oh, okay. But he did his uh, own completely different interpretation of it. in his own it. way, yeah. Um, it also like the red room shows up, but it's only an interlude. Like I guess they they got really excited about the red room just being one part of a black lodge. So like right. Cooper goes in, and some of the some of the scenes kind of have similar things. But then like Wyndham Earl gives this explicit monologue in a dentist's office about how it's basically the throne room to hell, and how some people refer to the black lodge as hell, and you know what they call the other place or something like that, and how he's basically going to sacrifice Cooper to ascend to be the king of hell. And then Bob wow. shows up in a doctor's costume and is about to like suck out Cooper's soul with a syringe when Laura Palmer comes in and says, no, don't. And then Cooper wakes up. Wow. Super cheesy. <laughs> um, amazingly cheesy. Um, there's a lot of other just tiny things that are changed that seems like Lynch changed. Like Lynch, Burnett Pulaski, I don't remember being in the script. Sarah Palmer, I don't remember being in the script. Also, Pete is replaced in the script with... Um, Catherine with Catherine. I was wondering why Catherine wasn't in this. Yeah, in the script, um, Andrew Packard switches the keys, runs off, and then Catherine follows immediately after, and she takes the, the other key that he swapped and goes to the bank, and the two of them show up with two separate keys, uh. and then they both explode. <laughs> that was so. That was always in there. It made me wonder if Pete blew up, or if Lynch blew up Pete just because Jack Nance didn't want to be in the show anymore. If there was a third season, and he did a favor did to his that? friend. No, that was my my oh. that was my guess. Is like, oh. did, or or David Lynch just wanted in his last episode to shoot more scenes with Pete, right? Um, but um, there's a there's a bunch of other smaller changes, but the complete the Black Lodge stuff was just on the nose, cheesy, cheesy stuff. Like like it just had Wyndham Earl going on and on and on about the the murder and about all these things and Dale's like you you got the best of me and I can't tell if it's meant to be sarcastic or what's going on but it's just like huh. it's just it, it takes up the same amount of time in the script it feels like yeah. um but it's just on the nose it's just oh, a totally different the script, script also seems more like Doc Hayward punches Ben Horn and he when he hits his head he dies almost it seems like Huh. Like Ben Horn just doesn't intense. move yeah. in the in the script. It explicitly yeah. says that he's unmoving. Mm -hmm. That was oh, that was just the specific thing that I wanted to talk about. I think because of 
it ending with Cooper kind of being lost to the lodge and screaming, how's Annie and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not in the script, but I think because of that and the explosion specifically, I think people feel like this was David Lynch burning it all down, but really the script I think is even more brutal to the, to the ancillary cast mm-hmm. because it, it blows up. I mean, it still blows up Catherine in, instead of Pete and it blows up Audrey, but I think it also kills off Ben Horn, which Lynch does not do. He explicitly has Ben Horn just have a big cut on his face and look up kind of shocked. Uh-huh. And then the scene ends, but like so much, so much of just the complete sort of nihilistic insanity of this script right. came from Frost, Peyton and Engels huh. um, and not Lynch, but Lynch is culturally often That's credited as the destroyer of Twin Peaks at the right. end. I mean, I think that really speaks to the, you know, we've, we've talked about this but not in a long time. I think we talked about this mainly much earlier in the run. Um, I really think that the collaboration between, I mean, I know Peyton and Engels are part of this as well, but at the most core level, I think the collaboration between Frost and Lynch is really important to what makes this show good when it is good. I think they temper each other's stuff a lot. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's clear that Lynch has such, such, such a better sensibility for just imagery and for sort of ambiguity and so on. But it's also clear that Frost has a better sensibility for plotting and sort of through lines yeah, and things like that. Making Lynch this. work within the framework of sort of a traditional plot and characters that you ha- that you can sort of sympathize and empathize with in the way that you do a traditional TV show yeah. is it creates it, something really yeah. great when it's good, you know. And yep. it, and um, you know, <laughs> actually that that leads into something. Another email we have. Speaking of email, um, how do you feel, Jake? I'm going to pose this to you now on the air under pressure. Um, we've talked about maybe doing one or two follow-up episodes after Firewalk with me um, to sort of talk about maybe some of the missing pieces stuff on the on the uh, disc sets. Or, or mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering if maybe we can also um, just do some sort of wrap-up reader mail on yeah, I think that'd a, be good. Follow up. We have a lot. I was looking through the the email inbox, and we have a lot of good reader mail that that is. I think it'd be fun beyond to do, the scope of this one episode. Yeah, probably. I, I think it'd be fun to do a wrap up reader mail episode at the end, but maybe also just to have some like YouTube homework because there's some strange ancillary Twin yeah. Peaks stuff that we could also just get do after totally. we do a missing pieces a- a- episode. Ab- absolutely, I agree. But um, just in terms of one kind of ex- extended topic email, just because we were talking about uh, Frost and Lynch right now. Um, I do want to read this from Miles Barrows. He writes, Hey, Twin Peaks Rewatch. With the rewatch coming to a close, I thought it would be appropriate to bring to your attention the series that Frost and Lynch Productions worked on after they finished Twin Peaks, called On the Air. Set in the 1950s, On the Air was an absurd, surreal, slapstick comedy that took place behind the behind the scenes of the fictional Zablotnik Broadcasting Company's variety program, The Lester Guy Show. Presumably due to the initial success of Twin Peaks, the show was aired on ABC primetime almost a year to the day after its predecessor ended. Despite almost exclusively featuring Twin Peaks writers and directors such as Robert Engels and Leslie Linkaglatter, it failed to garner the critical attention or viewership that the latter did, and of the seven episodes that were filmed, only three were ever aired. Commenting out on the show after its failure, David Lynch remarked, Very absurd and really stupid. I love that combo, but apparently nobody else does. <laughs> If that's not enough to pique your interest, the show starred Ian Buchanan, Dick Tremaine, as the titular Lester Guy, and Miguel Ferrer, Agent Albert Rosenfield, as the perpetually angry president of the network, Bud Budwaller. David Lander, Tim Pinkle, the nervous salesman and pine weasel conservationist, and the lecherous Miss Twin Peaks choreographer, is also a regular, playing a heavily accented German director no one can quite understand. Due to the show's ignominy, it was ever only... (laughs) ignominy, it was only ever... How do I... I don't know how to pronounce that word, I just realized... It was only ever released on VHS and as a pair of Japanese-only Laserdiscs. Someone has taken the time to upload all of the episodes to YouTube, but presumably due to copyright concerns, they're only available at 240p. As an indication of the show's obscurity, the pilot on YouTube has been watched by fewer than 4,000 people, and the series bottoms out on episode 5 with 408 views. It is worth a viewing as, just as on Twin Peaks, nothing quite like on the air has ever been made, even if television audiences of 1992 wish it never had been. Um... I thought you might be interested in another intriguing, albeit tangential, part of the Twin Peaks narrative. If you're at all interested, I think a watch of the pilot would make a great one-off podcast episode after you finish Firewalk with me. Thanks for the great podcast, Miles. Maybe we'll list that as an optional viewing after the thing is done. Um, Next week is Firewalk with me. I want to give a couple words of advice out about Firewalk with me. Mm -hmm. Firewalk with me, as as we remember from the email, I guess it was last week. Mm Mm-hmm. 
had a strange history with its deleted scenes and with a bunch of things that were shot for it. Firewalk With Me is the easiest, the sort of best and canonical way to watch Firewalk With Me is mm-hmm. on the Blu-ray set that came out, the Twin Peaks Complete Mystery Blu-ray. However, if you don't have access to that, you can, at least in the United States, watch it through some four-pay streaming services. I think it's on Amazon. I think it's on iTunes. Um, if you find yourself in a place that you have to acquire Firewalk With Me by some other means, first, please pay for it in any way that you can, but make sure that the one that you're watching is just slightly over two hours. I think the official running time for Firewalk With Me is 134 minutes. If you have a weird bootleg copy or something and it's longer than that, it is a shitty fan edit that stitches a bunch of garbage Mm, into it. So, like, if you want to watch the movie that David Lynch had Final Cut on and was released to theaters, make sure that it's the one that's just a little over two hours. I think uh, 134 minutes. Otherwise, you're watching a bunch of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor for a lot of reasons that we can get into next week or when we watch the missing pieces content um the week after this so just beware of that but um firewalk with me should be available in a lot of places to to get at this point um cool anyway that is next week i i keep feeling like i have stuff i want to talk about that's spoiler discussion but really why would i talk about it now and i can just yeah. talk about everything next week yeah so, that's true and I'm, I'm looking through our reader mail right now and we have a lot of we have a lot of really good reader mail, but I think I'm I'm just going to wait until we we uh, have that kind of wrap up. Do mailbag episode, yeah. yeah, because because there's there's good stuff and and relatively little of it is necessary right this second. Like most okay. of it is kind of incidental things. Cool. So, yeah, um, this has been really fun. I'm I'm really excited that we made it through the whole um, television run of Twin Peaks, and I'm really excited about uh, rewatching the movie and and talking about that. Um, and I'm also really excited about just doing one or two more kind of yep. fun episodes. So I know I, I know we're right at the end here, but um, if you have been enjoying this, um, this would maybe be a good episode to pass on to your friends who have seen Twin Peaks um, and, you know, have already seen the finale and all this. And uh, if you think that we deserve your praise, um, consider rating us on iTunes. This will this will be a series that just lives forever on our website and on iTunes um, for for future reference uh, for Twin Peaks fans, and you know we'll we'll start it over, I guess, next year when the when the new episodes come out on Showtime. That'll be fun. Yep. Um, so if so, pass it on if you think if you think it's worthwhile. And you can find links to all of the places that we exist on the internet at TwinPeaksRewatch.com. Also, if you're a person who skipped a bunch of season two because you'd watched it before and didn't like it and came back, you're my best friend. So welcome anyone who <laughs> for whom that happened to have been the case. Yeah. Okay, and it's goofy, but to be clear, we're watching the entire movie this week, even though it's the length of two episodes of Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're not splitting the movie in half. That might mean next week's podcast episode is a little longer. Um, mm-hmm. But we're just as this one probably, yeah, is. as this one probably <laughs> is. But we're just going for it. So watch all the Firewalk with me, um, and we'll see you guys next week. Great, thanks for listening. Goodbye, Chris. <laughs>